Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Bibles open to the book of James. We are headed to a book that has been greatly misunderstood for hundreds of years. If you are a student of church history, then you probably know that Luther, he referred to James as a straw epistle. He detested the book of James because he could not figure out the sections on works and how they fit in with faith alone in Christ alone. In more modern times, the resurgence of Reformed theology has added great confusion to the understanding of this epistle. I believe the epistle of James is clear. I believe if you look at the words used and pay close attention to the text— James is something that can not only be easily understood, but it is something that God himself intended for us to understand. This is a beautiful section of the Word of God, and my goal is to help you come to a solid understanding of this great epistle from God's Word. James chapter 1, and we start with verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Most of you have read of the man, William Carey, who became the great missionary to India in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Years into his ministry in India, those who were supporting him in England sent a man who could operate a printing press. And soon the two men were turning out sections of the Bible that they could give out to the people. Carey had spent many, many years learning the language so that he could produce the scriptures in the local dialect. Carey had also created dictionaries, and books on grammar, so the people that followed after him on the mission field could use these tools to learn the language, to reach the people for Christ. One day while Carrie was away, a fire broke out. It completely destroyed the building, the printing press, the Bibles, the manuscripts, the dictionaries, and the books on grammar. Pretty much everything he had been working on for years to reach these people for Christ had been completely destroyed. When Carey returned and was told of this tragic loss, he showed no sign of despair, no sign of being angry. But instead, he knelt and he thanked God 
that he still had the strength to do the work over again. He started immediately, not wasting a single moment in self-pity. But something else happened back in England as word spread about the fire. It sparked even more interest in his work. More money and more materials were sent to him than he had ever received before. Before his death, Carey had recreated all that he had lost, and he even had the opportunity to improve upon the work that he had done before. The lesson for us is that the trials of his life, they produced great joy. Trusting the Lord Jesus Christ gave him joy while he went through the hard times. Now this, this is just one of the powerful lessons before us in our text. We start with verse 1 in James. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now remember when a letter was written on papyrus, it wasn't folded, it was rolled. You would unroll the epistle as you continued to read. So it was very important to open a letter with a statement declaring who the letter was from and who the letter was to. First, we learn that the author of this letter is James. The fact that the author of this epistle simply referred to himself as James meant that he was someone that was well known to the first century Christians. They would have understood who he was. Now, we have four men named James that appear in the New Testament, but two of them mentioned in Luke 6 and in Mark 3, we don't read much about them in the pages of Scripture, and it would be a hard sell to figure out how either of these men would be the author of this epistle. A third possibility is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Now, I have a hard time thinking he was the author because Acts 12.2 tells us that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. He would not have had the time before his own death to write this epistle. The human author used by God was James, the brother of the Lord. Now, obviously, James would have been younger than Jesus. As a child of Joseph and Mary, he was a half-brother of Jesus. And the fact that his name appears first in the list of the brothers of Christ in Mark chapter 6, it suggests to us James was the oldest of all the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. We've made mention before that the scriptures are very clear that the brothers of Christ did not believe in him during his ministry before the cross. But 1 Corinthians 15, it records that the resurrected Christ appeared to James. And when we crack open Acts chapter 1, we find James waiting with the rest of the followers of Christ for the Spirit of God to come on the day of Pentecost. We've gotten used to calling him James, but his name was really Jacob. Certainly a common name back then, but his name was Jacob, not James. His name went from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to French and then to English. And along the way, poor Jacob became James. Now, we know that Jacob, we'll call him James, it might catch on, he was killed for the faith around 62 AD. This sets this epistle as written before then, but I would back it up much further, somewhere before 50 AD, and if you press me real hard for a date, I would guess around 44 AD. And the reason I believe this early date for James ties in with the wording of verse 1. Skip down to the second part of verse 1. Notice what James records to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. 
Now, the 12 tribes was simply a Jewish expression which indicated that this was referring to the Jews as a group of people. But think about what is missing. There is no reference at all to any Gentiles. This is a Jewish letter. This is a Jewish epistle from James, a leader of the church at Jerusalem, to the Jewish Christians. Listen, I believe this epistle was written very early on in the church. It probably was the first book of the New Testament written. Written before the book of Galatians. And it was written after the church was first experiencing persecution in Jerusalem. This was written before the gospel had spread to the Gentiles. And so what this means is that the reference here to the Jews scattered abroad, it does not refer to the dispersion of the Jews all over the Roman world that took place centuries before this. This refers to the scattering of Jewish believers in the persecution that followed the martyrdom of Stephen. So think about the timing. In Acts 7, Stephen was hauled before the Jewish leaders, and at the very end of Acts 7, Stephen was stoned to death, and listen carefully to the words of Acts 8.1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Listen to what Saul was doing at this time in verses 3 and 4 of Acts 8. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. The scattering was the Jewish Christians fleeing Jerusalem for their lives as they fled throughout Judea and Samaria. Acts 8, 1 is very clear that the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Acts 15 teaches us that James was a leader of the church at Jerusalem. And in Galatians 2.9, Paul himself referred to James as a pillar. Sometime, not a lot, but some time had passed since these believers had fled Jerusalem and James was now writing to them. From the greeting that this was written to the 12 tribes, we understand that this was written before the gospel had truly taken root amongst the Gentiles. And the thing to remember is that these Jewish Christians still placed a high value on the law. They were committed to knowing the law, memorizing the law, but some of them were still not living out their faith in Christ. Take another look at the second description James gives to us of who he is in the first part of the verse a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing statement that demonstrates the great humility of this man. James was the half-brother of the Lord, a key leader of the church at Jerusalem. The early Christians knew who he was, and I'm convinced that once the Lord revealed himself to James after the resurrection, that James became so committed to the truth of Christ James became so committed to the identity of Christ as the Messiah, as our Savior, that his earthly relationship with Jesus was pushed into the back of his mind. James grew up in the earthly family of the Messiah, the half-brother of Jesus, and yet with the greatest humility, he labels himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bondservant. 
Now, the Reformed camp sees this as being a slave of God. One Reformed leading author even wrote a book titled Slave just a few years back. They see it as someone forced to serve Christ, forced to do the will of God. This is just an awful distortion of a beautiful truth of Scripture. James didn't understand it this way. The word in play is the Greek word doulos. Take yourself back to the first century. The first century church had to wrestle with tough issues, masters and slaves, one man being a slave to another, but both could be members of the body of Christ. Both Peter and Paul taught on how to deal with these situations. And so what the early church did was to take this word doulos, our word here in verse 1, the early church took this word doulos to describe our true relationship with God, because it rightly describes that we are totally dependent upon God. We completely belong to Him, and we should be completely dedicated to wanting His will in our lives, because believers choose to accept this relationship with Christ that God has offered because of His grace. The men used by God to write the words of the New Testament use the word doulos to describe the believer's relationship to God, but there's no inherent meaning in the word itself of being forced to be a servant or slave of God. Instead, the idea present in the New Testament is a believer submitting themselves to the will of their master. Yes, this word was used to describe the master-slave relationships of the day, but it was also used to describe the loving relationship between a father and a son. And it was used by the apostles and the men of the early church to describe their commitment and dependence on the Lord. And so what we have in this passage is James, prompted by his faith, prompted by his love toward his heavenly master, James identified himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the simple message of greetings tucked on to the end of verse 1 was the normal way in the first century of wishing joy for the people you met and greeted on the street and for the people you were writing to. So if you were reading this letter in Greek, you would see the message of wishing the readers joy with this word translated greetings. And then we see the instruction to count it all joy in verse 2. Take a look at verses 2, 3, and 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James plunges right into the heart of this letter already. In verse 2, we pass another point that you need to keep in mind as we work our way through James, especially James 2. It's often said by those that hold to Reformed theology and lordship salvation that part of the purpose of the book of James is to call these Jews to examine whether or not they were truly in the faith. But if you walk away with nothing else from all these studies together in the book of James, know from the word of God, that James was writing this epistle to believers as he is going to proclaim in verse 18, those who are born from above by the word of truth. Three times in chapter one, three times in chapter two, three times in chapter three, once in chapter four, and five times in chapter five, James used this exact phrase, my brethren. Fifteen times in five chapters, James said, my brethren. There is nowhere in this entire epistle 
Even in the famous passage in chapter 2 that James gives the slightest doubt that these people he was writing to were his brothers and sisters in the Lord. James was written to believers. James was not written to people to call into question their eternal salvation if they do not have enough good works. This is a key principle in understanding the book of James. The attitude that James is calling us to as believers in Christ, as part of the brethren, is to have joy when we face the different trials that come our way. In other words, when we face difficult times, the reaction should not be anger. It should not be frustration. It should be joy. Think about this with me. Most people count it all joy when they escape trials, when you don't have to go through the tough times. But here James testifies, count it joy when you have to go through those trials of life. The King James misses this one and refers to these as temptations. It should be trials because James had in mind the day-to-day trials of life. And notice that James does not say, count it all joy if you fall into various trials, but instead he records when, when you fall into various trials, the trials will come. Now, we look at this verse and we think to ourselves, yeah, but I'm not a missionary to India like William Carey. Or maybe we think, I'm not serving the Lord full time, or I'm not being persecuted for my faith. So this verse doesn't really apply to my situation in my life. Think again. Some of the Jewish Christians were being persecuted for their faith, but this is really not the point of this verse. The wording is actually clear that this refers to all the different types of trials of life. So if you ever have any problems, this passage is for you. And if your life is absolutely perfect and you'll always be without problems, feel free to tune out. These are the difficult situations of life that people go through, that we go through. But the difference is, for believers in Christ, the expectation is joy. In fact, this is a command. The command from Scripture is to count it all joy. It's not a feeling we are to have. This doesn't mean we're always going to be running around happy and just having a good old time as we go through some of these things. But it does mean that we, as members of the family of God, believe and have confidence that God knows what he's doing in our lives and that the results will be for his glory and for our good. In other words, let me put it this way. James wasn't saying, enjoy your trials. James wasn't saying you will have the feelings of joy in your life. He wasn't telling us to walk around with a fake smile while we just ignore the difficult things of life. James was calling us to trust and confidence in God and his purpose for the things we endure in life. James is telling us that the trials of life are opportunities under God's grace for growth in our faith and in our walk with Christ. When we look at these times as opportunities for growth, as opportunities to deepen our faith and our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of getting upset, instead of feeling desperate, we rejoice at the opportunity for growth. But if we get frustrated, if we get upset about all that we are going through, if we throw ourselves a pity party, then we miss out on the opportunity that God has given us to grow in our faith in Christ. The question should come, how can a man or woman in Christ have joy in our trials? 
Take another look at verse 3. Here comes the answer from James. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Understanding the benefit of the trials of life helps us to remember that this is meant to produce patience in our lives. The idea of testing in this verse is not to see if we're saved or not. The wording carries the idea of being refined. When our faith is tested, when we go through trials of life, it is during those times that we reflect on our faith, on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's often during these times that we see our own weak spots. We see the areas of our faith that we need to work on. And that is a good thing because then we can work on it. We can grow. We can mature in Christ. The idea of patience in this verse is that of being under a heavy load and staying there instead of trying to escape. This is the man. This is the woman in Christ remaining steadfast under the pressures of life. The idea given here is confronting our problems, confronting our trials while remaining loyal to the faith. It's holding up under pressure while waiting on God. In other words, if you break this down, this is the man or woman in Christ having confidence in God, waiting on God, enduring and holding up in the difficult situations of life, knowing that God is in control, and that he has a plan for your life, which involves you growing in your faith. Most of the time, you will not know when the situation will end, but your confidence the entire time is in God. The tests and trials of life should produce patience, endurance, and trust in God. Verse 4 builds out of this and records, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. Follow the progression in these verses. For the man or woman in Christ, for the man or woman of faith, we should face the trials of life with joy, knowing that they produce patience, knowing that they produce trust and confidence in God. And this patient trust in the Lord produces a mighty work of the Lord in our lives. Notice carefully how James starts out verse four, but let patience have its perfect work. In other words, if you're not careful, you can actually break the chain. You can break the progression that God intends for your life. You can go through the trials without the growth God intends in your life. God intends for you to develop patience. God intends for you to grow through your trials. And the duty we have, the obligation we are under, is to let patience complete its perfect work, to reach its intended goal. Now, as I think of this, I keep coming back to the life of King David. How many times do we see in the Old Testament when David was fleeing Saul, when his life was in danger, when David didn't seem to have a friend in the world? David grew closer to the Lord. When David became king, he had a life of luxury. And what happened? Well, then David fell into sin. I think this is really what we're getting at in this passage. Be thankful for the trials of life. Be thankful you're being challenged to go through some tough things in life, which should cause you to grow in your faith. And James teaches us here in verse 4, don't short-circuit the process. Don't just get depressed. Don't just play the victim. Don't have yourself a pity party. Embrace the challenges of life and let God work in your life during those difficult times. The outcome of these trials that God is looking for is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
we tend to look at this word perfect and think absolute perfection. But this really isn't the idea. The wording means maturity and growth. It's another way of saying complete in their faith. The idea is that you are no longer a babe in Christ. You have let the trials of life make you mature in your faith. This is not future perfection in heaven. This is something God wants us to work on right now. And the means to the end are the difficult times that he allows in our lives. The idea of lacking nothing is that there will be no area of our lives that will go untouched by our faith in Christ. And to top it all off, we can turn to the Lord for help. Verse 5 records, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We often quote verse 5, but we often fail to mention that the context of this verse is asking God for wisdom as we face the trials of life. I think the basic idea, the basic flow of thought, is that if you do not feel that you can look at the trials of life how James just told us to, don't turn to the methods of the world. Turn to the Lord. Turn to God and ask Him for His wisdom. To face the trials of life, as James just instructed us to, it takes the wisdom of the Lord. In other words, what James just recorded in verses 2, 3, and 4 is the wisdom of God of how we should look at our trials. And the follower of Christ needs wisdom from the Lord to see our trials the way that God sees them. And that is really the message of this verse. God is not promising everyone a higher IQ if we just ask him for it. Keep this verse in its context. What God is promising in the context of this passage is the ability to see the importance of the trials in our lives as we walk by faith, just as James described. Notice that we learn here, God gives to all liberally and without reproach. God is generous. God will help us to look at our trials his way if we ask him to. That is the lesson that should come out of this. Ask God to help us look at the trials of life as an opportunity to grow in our faith. If you do not look at your trials the way that James describes, you need to ask God for wisdom. God will give his wisdom freely in helping you to view your problems and trials in light of God's word. Think of the gracious God we serve. He loves to give his people wisdom. He loves to help his people understand their struggles in light of his word and his plan for their life. What a tragedy it is that Christians run to the world with their problems instead of to the Lord and his word. Now, James, he does warn us that we are under the obligation to ask in faith when making our request for wisdom. Take a look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I think the direction James now takes us is an important reminder. God's not a vending machine. We do have a responsibility in all of this. And the attitude that we must have is that of faith, casting off the doubt. If you want your prayer for wisdom to be answered, this is the expectation that is set. In order for prayer to be acceptable to God, it must be done with faith. We're talking about a total dependence upon God. But don't miss this. When we approach God with our petitions, 
We must believe not only in his ability to grant our requests, but also in his ability to answer in harmony with his character and purpose. Believing prayer takes its stand upon the character of God. Having doubt gives the picture of a divided mind being torn in two directions. This person has given a half-hearted petition to God, but is not at peace within himself with what he has asked of God. His inner desires are divided between God and the world. This isn't just people who can't make a decision. This is the person with a moral conflict. This person is not truly sure if they believe, if they trust the Lord. This man is double-minded. This man is divided right down the middle. Notice the first description of these types of men in the second half of verse 6. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Keep in mind, this is the man who prays without faith. And James gives us a picture of a man never at rest. The basic idea that's being expressed is that the man who prays with doubt in his mind without faith is as insecure and unsteady as the waves of the sea that are pushed around by the winds. They constantly move back and forth. Then we read in verses 7 and 8, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Such a person should stop entertaining any thought of receiving an answer to prayer until this believer learns to walk by faith. And again, in verse 7, what the person is looking to receive is God's wisdom in how they should handle their trials, their problems. In verse 8, James refers to such people as double-minded, or more literally, double-souled. Think about what James is telling us. A person with doubt instead of faith is acting like they have two separate souls or two separate personalities in their bodies. This person is always in conflict, not knowing what they truly believe. Part of this man is turned in the direction of God. Part of this man is turned towards the things of this world. There is a war raging inside of such a man. Part of him trusts God. Part of him completely distrusts the Lord. And the end result is that such a man is unstable in all his ways. This type of person is unsteady and unstable in everything he does because he has not learned to trust the Lord in his day-to-day life. There's a very close connection between the way a man prays and the way that he lives. And this person has a civil war going on inside. Tim Hansel. Tim was one of these guys who was always very athletic, always into sports. He was a rugby player. He was so good. He won a lot of awards. He was a tough guy. Tim liked to climb mountains. In fact, he earned the nickname Thrasher because of the way he would quickly climb up a mountain. At one point, Tim was on the Sierra Range climbing up a glacier. They were 14,000 feet up. They had spent the night on the mountain, and as they were going up, he was going around one of the climbers. And as he was passing this person, he lost his footing. Now, normally, when this happens, you take your axe and spike it into the ice. But because of the way he was situated, his axe was about an inch out of his reach. Tim began to fall at 32 feet per second. And when he hit the ground, when he hit the next level spot on the mountain, all of his friends thought he was dead. They climbed down and found him in a ravine. And he was coming to, and his friends were just amazed that he was even conscious. 
He was able to function and talk. He didn't have any broken bones. He was just shaken up. Now, Tim did mention that he felt a little shorter, but he was able to hike out of the mountains and went all the way home. Tim never told his wife what happened. He didn't want her to know. He didn't want her to worry. So for three entire days, he felt normal. Everything seemed fine. But he awoke in the middle of the night on the third day in a cold sweat. His body had been in shock for three full days, but when he woke up in the middle of the night, every joint in his body hurt. He was rushed to the emergency room, but what's done is done. And so, Tim lived every single day with chronic pain in every joint of his body. He went through stretches for weeks at a time when he couldn't sleep because of all the pain. Much of the time, because of the great amount of pain, he couldn't reach down below his knees. He tried once to go out and play tennis. He threw the ball up just a little bit to hit it to a friend, and that little bit of movement actually broke most of his ribs. His body was absolutely falling apart. Tim passed in 2009. But you would think that a man such as this would have the right to be miserable in life. He wasn't. Tim wrote a book about all that he went through and listen to what he wrote. I've prayed hundreds, if not thousands of times for the Lord to heal me. And he finally healed me of the need to be healed. I have discovered a peace inside the pain. I survived because I have discovered a new and different kind of joy that I never knew existed. A joy that can coexist with uncertainty, and with pain. Tim discovered a joy that exists even in times of pain and in times of struggle, because that joy is found in trusting the Lord. This is what James is calling us to, having joy in the difficult times, knowing that God will do something greater in the midst of it. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope, Paul says, hope does not disappoint because why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So look to the greater good that God is trying to do in your life. Look to the work of Christ as he seeks to produce patience and trust in your life so that you may be complete in your walk with Christ Jesus. If you find this broadcast helpful to your faith, please remember that we are listener-supported. You know, we don't spend a lot of time asking for money, but we do depend on your prayers and your support to cover our costs. We're a missions team dedicated to reaching people with the gospel of Christ and the teaching of the Word of God. Most of our expenses, we cover ourselves. And when people give, it actually helps us to cover the expense of airtime for Christian radio stations, the expense for the online platforms, and even the equipment we have to use to broadcast. We're looking for partners who would like to help us. Even those smaller monthly donations, it helps us to tell others of God's amazing grace. You can find out more on returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.